take our Bibles and turn over to, let's see here, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 today. Acts chapter 17, as we continue to note our study on growing in the Christian life, Acts chapter 17. I'm going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through 12 verses tonight. And then we'll pick up basically where we left off last week. All right? Beginning in chapter 17, the book of Acts, verse 1. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I feel like half of you are sleeping tonight at least. I almost did. Jesus loves me or Jesus loves little children or uh, Father Abraham or something like that. You know, just to kind of get the blood pumping. I feel like maybe we need to do a little bit of, you know, love lifted me or maybe I'm in right out, right up, right down or something like that. I just feel like there's a little bit of lethargic, you know, kind of a one of them feelings, you know. All right. So just want to remind you, I'm not. I know what's going on here. I know I'm going to have to try to keep you awake a little bit, aren't I? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, I was just checking to see if you was checking me. Okay, there you go. Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where a synagogue of the Jews was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, And three Sabbath days reasoned with him out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar, assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. They traveled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. The brethren immediately went away, Paul, uh, sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went unto the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. When the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came hither also and stirred up the people. Then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. As we said last week and as we began, we noted that no Christian can progress very far in the Christian life. No Christian can really be effective in their Christian life who does not make much of the Bible. I mean, the Word of God in which we hold in our hand, this thing we call a Bible, must be made much of. If it's simply just another 
piece of tapestry we find on the walls or on our coffee tables. There's no way in this world we're going to accomplish what God intended us to accomplish. And last week we began by talking about or asking the question, what is the Bible? And we noted that the Bible consists of the Scriptures. And we said that the Scriptures basically defined as, uh, in its primary sense, means simply a writing or anything written. And we noted that there were two Testaments. There was the Old, there was the New We kind of went through those and we noted them. Then we kind of discussed the Bible being the Word of God. And uh, at that point, we began to note that the Bible was inspired, that it is an inspired book. It's God-breathed. We went on to say that not only is it inspired, but it's also preserved. It's a book that's very unique and different than all other books as well. There is no other book like this book. It's the Word of God. It's perfect, infallible. It is inspired and it is preserved to our very day. What I hold in my hand today is literally the very book that God has in heaven today. In heaven. And we noted that the Bible itself is simply, we talk often about the, people will say things about the originals. Well, in the originals it says this, or in the originals it's that, and and my whole point and my thought today is that when Moses received the Bible, the Word of God, the, the, the uh, uh, actual commandments that God had given to him by his fingers, he wrote them out on that, those, those stone tablets, that literally that wasn't the original. That was simply a copy of the one that's already settled in heaven. And so in reality, there are no originals on earth. The only original is found in heaven. And every single book, every single parchment and every single piece of rock that had it engraved on it is simply a copy of what God has already written in heaven. So we have the Bible that is inspired and we have it that is preserved and it is preserved and inspired and it is unique and different and unusual. There is no book like this book. And so we concluded basically with that thought. And tonight I want to pick back up And begin to discuss what is the central message then of the Bible. Again, our goal and our desire ultimately is to grow in the Christian life. And so many times, as I've said, I'm convinced and even concerned that many times we say we believe a lot of things, but when really nailed down or asked to support what we believe, we fail miserably. In most cases, we would like to run to our Sunday school teacher and, or point people to our pastor or say, you need to talk to so-and-so. Or often we hear words like, well, my pastor said and my Sunday school teacher said. And I want you to understand once again, and I want to continue to pound this into your mind, that that is not a sufficient answer, nor is it the kind of acceptable answer that God would have for His children. God would have you to know that book as well as the next. Nobody is to, to, to go through life allowing someone else to define the Word of God and to ultimately describe the Word of God and ultimately even, if you will, um, interpret it for them. God's Word is its own best commentary. And God intends for you and I all, every last one of us, to have a real grasp on this Word and to be able to teach it to others. And so I want to encourage you as we go through it, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, I want you to think about what you're hearing, and I want you to truly ask yourself this question. 
If I was the one that had to teach it, could I? And if I did not have my Bible sitting right in front of me with my notes that I just took, could I possibly explain it to someone else in a way that would make sense and then be able to take them to Scriptures and show them why that's the truth and not just say that it is the truth? Again, nobody cares what you believe. Nobody cares what I believe. What matters is what God says. And that's the real key. I'm very disappointed with our president tonight. Very disappointed. Very disappointed. I don't know why I should be, but I am. When I mean why I should be, his track record has proven that he makes horrible decisions concerning morality. However, he has made a very grave error. Not because he opposes what I believe, but because he opposes what God says. God loves every single person in this world. And God wants every single person saved. It has nothing to do with God's love for mankind, but it does have something to do with God's laws for mankind. Whether you want to admit it or whether you agree or not does not matter. Your opinion does not hold weight with God. My opinion doesn't hold weight with God. Neither does our presidents. Let God be true, but every man a liar, the Bible says. And that's the reality of life today. I don't care what you think the roles of a husband and wife should be. I don't care what you think a family should be defined as. It doesn't matter what you think is a proper relationship doesn't matter what you, I, or anybody else thinks. What matters is what God says. God defines what a marriage is. God defines what a blessed union is. God defines what is a proper physical relationship and what isn't. God defines those things. And as we hold this book, we better stop deceiving ourselves and saying things like, well, I believe that book, when in reality we don't because we don't agree with it. If you, if you honestly can say to yourself that I have no problem with gay marriage, you don't care what God says. I'm not saying, hey, listen, I was at the Sam's Club the other day and I watched two men hugging each other, walking out the door with a little boy running around. And I thought to myself, here's what I thought, poor young man. Because he's going to grow up to be gay because that's what he's being taught to do. It's not he wasn't born that way. He was, he's going to be taught to be that way. And he's going to live in an abominable lifestyle. And by the way, if you think, because you're a heterosexual, that you're not, when you're outside of marriage, having relationships with women, outside of marriage, let me tell you something, that's abominable too. So let's just put it all on equal ground here. I'm not picking on anybody or anything. You want to be immoral, indecent, and go contrary to God's Word, you are just as much an abomination in the sight of God as any gay couple that's out there. Because what they're doing is no more worse than what you're doing. Immorality is immorality is immorality. And I don't support any of it because God doesn't. That's all. I don't have a bit of problem dealing with people, helping people, encouraging people, and loving people. Because, listen, I am not always where I ought to be And that means that I'm just on equal ground with them and they're equal ground with me. Just because their sin may be in your eyes a little bit bigger than others, it is no more more, uh, a a problem than what my sin is to God too. So we better have the right attitude toward people. We better love people like we ought to love them. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm a little concerned about the leadership of our America 
and the next generation. Very concerned. And I'm going to be honest with you. I can't tell you who to vote for. You have to make that decision yourself. But I'm going to tell you something. I think, personally, if a Christian can vote for a man that believes and endorses and supports a lifestyle that is completely and totally contrary to the Word of God, I think you don't really know what the Bible says. Or two, you don't care. Sorry, just thought I'd share those things tonight. I'm a little bit fed up with how Christians today throw the same, just throw the Bible right out the window. We're talking about it, so why don't we start believing it and living it? We're going to talk about some things. You say, you're a little bit radical. Yeah, I'm radical, all right, because I believe exactly what God says. If that's radical, then label me. I want to believe that book, because last I checked, everything good that I own in this world and have in this world and then possess in this world is a direct result of Him and following His Word. Every single thing. If there's anything bad that I have that goes on in my life, it's because I have deviated and gotten away from God and His Word. And I don't want that for anyone. I don't want it for anyone. I don't. I, care. I can't even explain myself right now, to really, the way I'd like to. I'm, I'm just... I feel so bad for this, these children. I feel so bad for those people in bondage today and enslaved, being told they're right when they're, God says clearly it's wrong, a wrong lifestyle. I feel for them. They're in bondage today. Just like the sinner and just like the immoral man or woman in heterosexual relationships, they're in bondage. They need delivered and they need Jesus Christ. Well, you better not shy away from them. You better not walk away from a gay couple. You better talk to them like you talk to any other couple. You better love them. You better lead them to Jesus Christ because they need them just as much as we do. I don't know. Anyway. I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay. What is the central message of the Bible? Right here it is. Christ is the central message of the Bible. Christ is. Jesus Christ. The incarnate Son of God, the crucified, risen, exalted, and alive forevermore, Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Again, we see the incarnate uh, uh, God of heaven. He becomes flesh. Not only that, but He was crucified. You go through this book, you see evidence of the crucifixion everywhere in 1 Corinthians 1.23. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. Later on, the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, I'll tell you what, now there's a single-minded man, isn't it? Single-minded. Not only crucified, not only incarnate, but we also see a Jesus that's risen in that book. The Bible says in Matthew 28, 6, He is not here, for He's risen as He said. He rose again the third day. He's not dead, He's alive. We really believe that. Do we? You know what? I don't think Christians believe that. You know why I think that? Because sometimes I've struggled in my life. And you know why I struggle with sin? You know why I really don't really have as big a problem with sin in my life sometimes as I should? Because I really don't recognize His presence because I don't believe He's really living. If I really thought He was alive and watching me, I'd probably be a little less apt to continue in my lifestyle and my ways. Sadly enough, we're all very prone to following after the flesh and 
In many cases, when that's the case, we really just don't acknowledge his presence at all. We follow our own. He's risen, though. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Exalted. He's exalted. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And I want to tell you something. The, the Lord Jesus Christ, his name is wonderful. Amen. It's wonderful. Well, I, I know when we talk about it before, some of the Mexican guys, they, they got, you know, uh, that Jesus or Jesus, you know, they, they, that's a normal name. But, but still, there's a difference between Jesus and that. There's obviously, and there is a notable difference. There's nobody, nobody, and no name that's exalted like him and his. And he is alive forevermore. Over in the book of Revelation, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He goes on to say, He is which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Man, Jesus Christ forevermore. So you can't open the Word of God. You can't open this book without coming face to face with Jesus Christ. You can't do it. It's impossible. Turn, if you would, over to the, the book of John, chapter 5, verse 39. You can't open the book without coming face to face with Jesus Christ. You just can't do it. I mean, do you think it's coincidence that back in the 1960s they took this Bible out of the schools? Do you think that they did not see 2010 down the road? It took 50 years. It's been taking 50 years now to totally disintegrate biblical, biblical morality. They're just wearing it down. They're destroying it. And you don't think that that is a diabolical plan? You don't think that somehow there is a mastermind behind all of this that's orchestrating it all? I'm not a, you know, I'm not a real one of those guys that really gets into all of these um, conspiracy theories. I'm not one of those guys. You know, who shot JFK and then I listened to, you know, 12,000 hours of video and people telling me why J.R. shot him. Some of you know what I'm talking about if you lived back 20, 30 years ago. Who shot J.R. and all that stuff. But, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. You know, the 911, how the, the, the towers came down. I don't know if their government knew about it. I don't know if those buildings were, you know, legitimately built so that they would ultimately fall. I don't know all those answers. But what I do know is that terrorists flew some planes into them and they come crashing down. I know that much. I'm saying I'm not a real conspiracy theorist. But I can tell you this much. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I can tell you right now that there is one conspiracy and that the conspirator is none other than Satan himself. And don't tell me for a minute that he hasn't orchestrated the downfall of the morality of the United States of America. And all you need to do is go back into history and look at Rome and you'll see we're right on time and right on track and our fall is coming just like theirs did because of the same exact sins. I mean exact. We don't have time to talk about that. Notice John 5.39. You're going to come face to face with Jesus Christ. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Every time you open this book, every time you search its pages, Every time you go over the verses and the chapters and you read the books, you come face to face with none other than Jesus Christ. It's just the way it is. 
You say, I just don't know the Lord like I'd like to. You better get into it then. Here, here, you can find out all about Him. You can know Him personally, intimately. Here it is. You know why I think sometimes our converts aren't as quick to be in the Word of God and they're not so devoted to it? I'm thinking, you already know what I'm going to say, don't you? Because they don't have many good examples of it. I mean, when's the last time you turned around and started going with your new converts? Some of you led to Christ and saying, I just was curious, uh, what verses have you uh, memorized lately? And they're like, what are you talking about? I, oh, I didn't, I haven't memorized any verses. And they look at you and go, which ones have you learned? Oh, I was just wondering if you did. You know, I mean, that wouldn't go over very well, would it? You've got to learn some in order to say those kind of things to people. I mean, you've got to actually read the Bible to say, so how's your Bible reading and how's your prayer life? Well, it's not been that good. Do you have some suggestions for me? I'm glad you asked. I do. You, can't, you don't have those suggestions unless you have a prayer life, unless you're in the Word of God. And I'm concerned today that there's not a whole lot of good examples leading me, people to, to, to a, a real fulfilling Christian experience. It's so shallow today. Because we have no real depth of understanding of the Word of God. He says if you search those Scriptures, you're going to find that, that, that you will have the confidence of eternal life. And not only that, but you're going to find Him. You'll run face to face into the presence of Christ. See, the central message of the Bible is Christ. In Acts 17, 3, one of our text verses, he says, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. I mean, they had a real problem with Jesus Christ, you know. I mean, those Jews and, and even the Gentiles, they were struggling with who Jesus was. You know what, that's how people are today, aren't they? I mean, when you walk up to a door today and you start talking to somebody and then you mention Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, they do not know the Christ that your grandma taught you about. Well, they say, oh, I've heard that name. I, I recognize it. Isn't he the one that uh, was born in a manger? But they don't know who Christ is. Paul says this is the very Christ. This is the man that's Messiah. This is the one that's the anointed one. This is the one that was promised to us. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who died, was buried, and rose again the third day. That's the Jesus I give to you. A Jesus who can change your life, transform your mind, and give you eternal life. That's the Jesus I speak of, he says. And yet those Judaizers and, and those, those uh, Gentiles often were very, uh, di had a difficult time grasping the concept and may I say, it's no easy concept to grasp. And it's not one you grasp intellectually. It's one you grasp by faith. What we learn is that the bloodstain of Calvary runs through the whole Bible, throughout the entire Bible. Right down through there you see this bloodstain. The central theme of the Word of God, I, I, didn't, I, I, I mean, He's at the very center of it all. Take Jesus out of the Bible, you have nothing. It doesn't make any sense, and it serves no real purpose. Sure, there would be some historical value. We could learn something about the 
celestial pieces and parts of the universe. No doubt there's great knowledge and knowing the Word of God in and of itself, just without Christ even. But there is no real Bible without it. Because He is at the center of it all. You think about that bloodstain of Calvary that runs right through the Bible. You, you can't help but think about those, those skins that pictured salvation for Adam and Eve. I mean, those slain animals that ultimately provided the coverings, the coats, for their naked bodies after the fall. Again, Adam and Eve, after the fall, recognized that they were naked. They sought to cover their nakedness themselves. But their nakedness pictured something far more severe than just simply nakedness. It pictured their sinful and undone state. And the fall is recognized, I think, in two major areas. Number one, shame now replaced their solace. They were at peace. Now they had shame. I mean, they were aware of their nakedness for the very first time. And that reminds us, if you will, that corruption had invaded and infused itself within mankind. And they lost their innocence. And now they were walking in sin. And that sin brought death. And number two, not only the shame now replaced their solace, but death had visited their soul, their soul first. They were separated from God because of sin, dead in spirit. And that would affect their bodies. And ultimately their bodies would die as well. See, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, the Bible says. And when mankind died within, he ultimately would die without. What affected his soul would now affect his body. And today we see evidence of that sin with every funeral that we attend. But I'm glad that Adam and Eve weren't abandoned, but instead the blood was appropriated. In Genesis 3.21, the Bible says, Unto Adam also... And to his wife did the Lord make, uh, Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. I mean, they had these, these, these leaves, I guess. I don't know. Maybe some bark. Now, that'd been a little rough. You imagine? Having a little clothes of bark on and scraping on you. And like, man, I'm going to need a little, you know, I, that, that right there is a little bit rough. You know, I'd start, what are you limping for, honey? That, that bark's really rubbing me raw right over there on the hip there. I mean, that wouldn't be very good, would it? So God, God they, they, they probably made him of leaves and stuff, you know, real bushy stuff. And Eve came out and said, what do you think, big boy? How do I look today? And he said, honey, you still look good, but I liked it better the other way. But the only problem was that God had another plan. Man, listen, those, those leaves weren't going to get it done because there had to be bloodshed. And so God, He sacrifices one of those animals and the blood is shed. And as a result, those skins go on their bodies and God clothed them even as He clothes us in righteousness. Not only do we see it pictured in those coats of skins, but we see that blood trail pictured in the offering of Isaac upon the altar of Abraham. The Bible says in Genesis twenty-two thirteen, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
Behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. I mean, there went Abraham to the top of that mount. And there beside him was the idol in his life. Did you get what I just said? As he made his journey to the top of that mount, beside him was his idol. And God said, I want the idol in your life. He said, that was his son. Yeah, well... Sons and daughters can become idols. And so can wives and husbands. So can sports and leisure. And there they went up to that mound, and when they arrived, God said, It's time. Offer the idol. Not that he had done anything wrong, but God was testing his man. There's no way that you and I will ever arrive at the place of the friend of God we have been tested severely. So often we want the title of the friend of God. But we're unwilling to be tested severely. And God said, it's time to prove yourself, your loyalty and your love for me. And there He laid His only Son on that altar. As He went to slay His own Son, God being righteous, said, no, the testing is completed. You've passed. Now look behind you. And there was a substitute. And may I say today that there's not a one of us that doesn't deserve to hang on that old cross for our sin. But thank God Jesus came. And there He hung on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Blood spilt that day. And the substitution was made. We see it pictured in that offering of Isaac upon the altar by Abraham. We see that bloodline also pictured in the Passover itself. You know, the children of Israel were bound in Egypt. The plagues had come along and Pharaoh was finally hardened to the point where he was willing to lose his own son. And God said, that's exactly what you'll do. That night, The destroyer went through. That night, God took vengeance on those who had transgressed against His people. The destroyer would pass over those whose doorposts and lentils were covered with the blood of a perfect sacrifice. Exodus 12, 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians... When he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Aren't you glad when Jesus Christ sees the blood, he'll pass over us too? God takes no pleasure in bringing suffering. But in suffering, and usually only through suffering, Can he bring salvation? Very few people are willing to come to Christ and pay the price to come if they're not already hurting and in need. 
There is no greater need in the life of a man or woman than God's forgiveness. I remember hearing about a lady who prayed for her husband for 20 years. She finally got so brokenhearted over his soul that she told the Lord, I don't care what it takes. It wasn't long, some years actually, a few years later, that he was on his back in a hospital on his deathbed. There she began to wonder whether or not she really meant the prayer that she had been praying. And she began to pray, Lord, save him and Lord, raise him up. She couldn't help but think, could this be why he's there? To answer my prayer. To be saved. To eternally live, not just live in this life, but forever. Thank God he trusted Christ as his Savior. God supernaturally healed his body. He raised up and walked away from that hospital bed. And when I met the two of them, they were a couple, probably 50 or 55 years of age, serving as youth directors in a small church. Sometimes God has to bring about the most severe temptations and circumstances to bring about salvation. But we see that blood stain throughout the Word of God. <laughs> it says in Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Man, we see that blood stain pictured in every sacrifice that is offered upon every Jewish altar and in every prophetical statement read in the book of Isaiah even. You think about that, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So what are we to do with this book, the Bible? What are we to do with it? First of all, we're to believe it. We're to believe it. Look, if you will, over the book of Acts. Once again, chapter 17, you may already be there. Notice verse 4. Look at verse 3. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. This Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Notice verse 4 now, chapter 17, verse 4, the book of Acts. And some of them believed. And some of them believed. I'm glad that some of them believed. You know, one of the knocks about door knocking and one of the negative aspects of, you know, old-fashioned fundamentalism is that we're back in the dark ages about evangelization. You know, that, that you, know you just don't realize that People are different now. They don't really want to hear that gospel. They're not very open to the truth. They, no, you're not going to get many results from it. Well, I, I must admit, I, I talked to my wife the other day, uh, Tuesday night when we were out door knocking. I said, as we walked away from one of the doors, we met a 90, 91-year-old man and his wife. 
They were out working in their yard. And as I walked away, they were so sweet and so kind, and they were so genuine and sincere. I said, Sherry, don't you just... I said, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that wishes I started my church in the 1950s. I said, if we knocked on the kind of doors that we knock on now, and I said, honestly, we probably knock on more doors than most churches did in the 1970s even. I said, if we would knock those doors, we'd have thousands in our ministry now. Now listen, I'm, not, I'm just saying, can you imagine how exciting it would be to run into people with character every day, time you knocked on the door? And every time you led someone to Christ as a whole, normally, after at least the second or third time going back, they show up in church? I mean, can you imagine how wonderful that would be? How exciting of a ministry it would be every time you go knock on doors, someone's getting saved. That's how it was in the 1950s, by the way. Even the 60s. But hold on a second. Who came up with the idea of knocking on doors, though? Was it just an idea that came about because there was such great success going door to door from house to house? Was that just because it was such a proven method at that time, we might as well go ahead and do it because it's really yielding a tremendous amount of fruit? No, that was God's idea from the beginning. God wanted His Word to go out into every highway and every hedge. God wanted to present the Gospel to every creature. That's God's way. It's 2012. You may know that already. And I'm going to be honest with you. You may knock on a number of doors. And not everyone's going to believe. But may I say that the critic of the Word of God and the method of God must not be concerned about the sum. You say, what do you mean, the sum? I'm not talking about some total. I'm talking about, and some of them believed. I mean, what is a soul worth? Is it worth 50 doors? Is it worth 100 doors? Is it worth 500 doors knocked? What is a soul worth? And some of them believed. But notice now, chapter 17, verse 12. And I like this one. In Berea, you know what it's like, some of you. You got them good routes. <laughs> Brother Hamilton talked about those routes before we all got them, how they all had problems. Everybody's route's a bad route. You know, remember that? Some of you are going, what's he talking about? Yeah, I know. But watch this in verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed. Many of them believed. Now he's in Berea, and many of them believed. You know what I find? If you'll stay faithful at things, God will begin to open doors. But you have to remain faithful. You've got to stay with it. We're to believe this book called the Bible. And sometimes the Bible says some believe, and other times many of them believe. I just want to know tonight, do you? 
See, the most deadly disease today is unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. Look there if you would. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. The Bible says over there in chapter 3, verse 17, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? To whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. See, the children of Israel had been promised a new homeland. They, they, they even had God's Word on it. Still, they would not believe God. And instead of occupying the land, they found themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. All because of unbelief. Boy, we need to believe the Word of God. What are you missing out on because of unbelief? Also, though, not only are we to believe it, but we're to search it. We're to search it. The Bereans searched the Scriptures daily, the Bible says in verse 11. It says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Not only did the Bereans search the Scriptures daily, but I'm going to say that we are to conduct an investigation in the Word of God on a regular, ongoing basis. An investigation. Let me ask you, when you started searching for a house, did you just buy the first one you looked at? I hope not. You didn't do that, did you? You decided, some people were shaking their heads, because in those days, if you're a few years older than I am, people were honest and would tell you the truth. Maybe not. But anyway... The fact is, is that you probably did a little research. You probably did a little investigation. You probably looked into a couple of different houses and took the pluses and the minuses of these and that and the cost of this and the cost of that and the, 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 the rate of interest that you might pay on that house and how much your payment would be and, and how much you could really afford. And you did some investigation. When you purchased your computer, and I know some people just go out and buy whatever they want. I understand that. I don't have the money to do that, and probably you don't either, most of you. So I have to research things. I want to make sure that I'm getting the, the most for my buck, the most bang for the buck. So, you know what? You, you don't just run out and buy the first one you see. Oh, let me tell you, you'll love this computer. Go ahead and buy it. It's a great price. It's the best deal ever. Okay, I'll take it. That's not how it works, does it? I mean, before it's over with, you probably shopped around, you priced them out, you did your best to compare apples to apples. You know, you, you checked out the processing speed, the RAM, the cache, the hard drive space. You even looked at the media card if you're into gaming and things like that. You really wanted to make sure that you're getting the most for your money. You investigated. And in your investigation, you learned about computers. You learned about homes. You learned about interest rates. You learned about finances. Do you really think that you can really be proficient in the Word of God until you do some investigation? I didn't just say, listen, you, didn't, you, you just don't read this book and come away with knowledge. 
Reading's a wonderful thing, but you have to investigate. You have to really study. You have to dig. You have to really focus and choose to learn. That means you have to investigate it daily. Not only do we, and and I'm going to close here any minute, really I am, we're to believe it, we're to search it, now we're to receive it too. You say, wait a second, I, I know the believe it and receive it, but how's come you through that search in there? Because see, you need to first of all believe that this book is God's Word. That's the first thing you need to do. Then you cannot receive it until you have searched it out. You don't even know what it says until you've searched it out. You don't even know what the principles are and what the beliefs are and what God stands on things. You know why we're struggling? You know, and again, I'm sorry, I keep going back to it, but you want to know why, why Christians struggle with who to vote for in the elections? Because they don't know what God stands for. Until I know what God stands for, I don't know who to vote for. Because I want somebody that's going to, as close as possible, stand on this as much as possible. You say, well, nobody does out there. I know, not completely, but I'm telling you something. There's a few issues that I'm seriously concerned about. And i got to know where God stands on them or I can't possibly vote right. And God's not as concerned about the economy as we are, I promise you that. You cannot receive something that you don't know anything about. You've got to know what it says. The Bereans received the word with all readiness of mind. That means they were ready to apply the Word of God. They wanted to make it real in their life. Not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. And finally, we're to proclaim it, aren't we? To proclaim it. Paul proclaimed it in verses 2 and 3 of the book of Acts, chapter 17 in our text. As his manner manner was, it says, He went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. I met a man that knows Mr. Harris, Sr. Out door knocking last night. He didn't, he didn't really, wasn't real comfortable talking to us, but he runs into him over here at the grocery store from time to time. And I thought to myself, Mr. Harris is good about inviting people to church. Sorry, Mr. Harris, just let me say this, and I don't mean any disrespect. I thought this, though. That won't matter. In the long run, what will really matter is, is he sharing Christ with him. He wouldn't let me share Christ with him last night, but I thought he knows somebody that knows him, and if he'll share Christ with him, he'll get it. And if he does go to hell one day, he'll not have anyone to blame but himself. Now, I know Mr. Harris. I know his heart. And I know he witnesses to people. I'm glad that he knows Mr. Harris. But I want to tell you something. Not everybody knows a Mr. Harris. Not everybody knows someone like you. We need to make sure we're proclaiming it everywhere. Because everyone deserves an opportunity to receive and accept this Jesus that we now love, hold to, and serve. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather in this place. Thank you, Lord, for just the simple, simple truths of your words.